Welcome to Saturday evening Torah class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week 21, Numbers, chapters 16, 17, and 18, continued. In our last lesson, we uh, began a three-chapter block of Scripture in Numbers that uh, seeks to make clear to everyone that the priesthood is central to Israel's relationship with Yehovah. And that the hierarchy of holiness that God set up, first with the tribe of Levi being separated away from Israel for special holiness as his servants, and second with the Levites themselves being divided up into two groups, one called the Levites, the other the priests, this was unchangeable. And what the Lord establishes, man does not change. Who the Lord decides to be his priests, man, uh, mankind can't revise that. And they certainly, we certainly can't abolish it. Now, in the story that began in number 16, we found a general condition of upset and unrest among the people of Israel. They're demoralized by the faithless and cowardly report of ten of the twelve scouts. And Israel's leadership's subsequent decision to avoid the conquest of, of Canaan, that promised land. The people were now emotionally unstable. They wanted change. New leadership seemed to them like a pretty good place to start. You know, it's one thing for men to occasionally seek to remove one set of leaders and replace them with another. It's quite another for men to try to usurp God's will, as it was with the case of this rebellion. Now, Korah, a a, a Levite, who was dissatisfied that the line of Aaron, a family line, who was also from the tribe of Levi, but it was a different clan than Korah's clan, this is Aaron is, is the only family line that can be appointed as highly prestigious priests, even though the entire tribe of Levi is separated away from Israel for special holiness and service to Yehovah. The priests have been given an even greater degree of sanctification than the rest of the Levites, with the high priest, currently that's Aaron, being given the highest degree of holiness possible for any Hebrew, save for Moses. Now, Korah is jealous, and he disputes this. He challenges Aaron's position, and he wants it for himself. And he wants the priesthood to be more evenly distributed among the other Levite clans. See, this was typical tribal society behavior, where tribes and clans within tribes were in this never-ending cycle of vying among themselves for dominant status and power. But the majority of the tribe of Levi, those who were not of Aaron's clan, were not the only ones in this story who had a serious axe to grind. We found that two clan leaders of the tribe of Reuben were challenging Moses for his job as the ultimate leader and authority over Israel. And the founder of the tribe of Reuben... Reuben, had been dead for at least 300 years. 
So what number 16 is, of course, referring to are his descendants. Now, Reuben, the firstborn son of Jacob, expected that he and therefore his future tribe would become the dominant tribe among the 12 tribes of Israel, as he also fully expected to have been awarded the leadership role over Israel by means of his birthright as the first son born to Jacob and thus receiving the customary blessings of the firstborn from his father. But Jacob rejected Reuben. He refused to give him the firstborn blessing and therefore the authority of the firstborn went down the drain for him. And this humiliating act would impact Reuben's family and then his eventual tribe in a very negative way from that moment forward. Instead, remember, Jacob split the provisions of the firstborn blessing that should have gone to Reuben, giving the right of leadership to the nation of Israel, to Judah, and giving the right to inherit the largest portion of wealth to Joseph. Reuben's descendants, even after all this time, had neither accepted this humiliation nor gotten over the loss of leadership status that they felt should have always been theirs. And as a result, at this moment, (coughs) we find the two tribal leaders of Reuben, who are Tatan and Abiram, challenging Moses' position as leader of Israel. They wanted the job. Along with Korah, Datan, and Abiram were 250 leaders, it says, of other Israelite tribes who also wished to remove Moses and Aaron from their God-established positions and to take over the leadership of the nation of Israel for themselves. Now Moses' solution was to let God handle it by means of a public demonstration. Each of these rebel leaders were to put hot coals into a fire pan, also known as a censer, lay incense on top of it, and then take that smoking mixture up to the entry to the tent of meeting, wilderness tabernacle. Then God would, in some undefined way, settle the matter as to who would be those privileged few, those priests that have access to the inner chambers of the sacred tent, and who would also have control over Israel. Let's reread starting at number 1616 to the end of the chapter to better recall what we read last week. Uh, if you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 168. That's number 1616. Moses said to Korah, You and your group, be there before Adonai tomorrow. You, they, and Aaron. Each of you, take his fire pan and put incense in it. Every one of you, bring before Adonai his fire pan. 250 fire pans, and you too, and Aaron. Each one, his fire pan. So each man took his fire pan, put fire in it, laid incense on it, stood at the entrance to the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron, and Korah assembled all the group who were against them at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then the glory of Adonai appeared to the whole assembly. And Adonai said to Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from this assembly, I'm going to destroy them right now. Well, they fell on their faces and they said, Oh God, God of the spirits of all humankind, if one person sins, are you going to be angry with the entire assembly? 
And Adonai answered Moses, Tell the assembly to move away from the homes of Korah, Datan, and Avaram. And Moses got up and went to Datan and Avaram, and the leaders of Israel followed him. There he said to the assembly, Leave the tents of these wicked men. Don't touch anything that belongs to them, or you may be swept away in all of their sins. So they moved away from all around the area where Korad, Datan, and Avaram lived. Then Datan and Avaram came out, and they stood at the entrance to their tents, along with their wives, their sons, their little ones. And Moses said, Here is how you will know that Adonai has sent me to do all these things, that I haven't done them out of my own ambition. If these men die a natural death, like other people, only sharing the fate common to all humanity, then Adonai has not sent me. But if Adonai does something new, if he opens the ground up and swallows them with everything they own and they go down alive to Sheol, then you'll understand that these men have had contempt for Adonai. The moment he finished speaking, the ground under them split apart The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with all their households, all the people who had sided with Korah, everything they owned. So they and everything they owned went alive down into Sheol. The earth closed over them and their existence in the community ceased. All Israel around them fled at their shrieks, shouting, The earth might swallow us too. Then fire came out from Adonai and destroyed the 250 men who had offered their incense. Korah and the 250 leaders and apparently some amount of others referred to as the whole community, those who sided with the rebels, do as instructed. And they show up the entrance to the tent of meeting with their fire pans. Without doubt, this was not at the door to the entrance of the sacred tent itself, but rather the gate into the tabernacle courtyard. Then the presence of God, the kavod, the glory, appeared before everyone, and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and tells them, stand aside, that he's going to annihilate everyone who's involved with this. Now, it must be that only Moses and Aaron heard Yehovah speak, I think. Or certainly all these men would have turned pale and run for their lives. And as it happened in the past, the mediator of Israel falls on his face and begs for mercy for those very men whose goal it was to do away with them in a coup. Further, in verse 22, Moses asks, Would you send your wrath, Lord, on an entire community because one man sinned? Now, obviously, this one man was Korah, who was the instigator of this whole mess. At least in Moses' view, it was Korah, who apparently stirred up Datan and Avaram, and who then helped, they helped Korah to stir up the others. But understand what's being discussed here. The topic is collective punishment. Obviously, not each man is guilty in exactly the same way or same level as all the others, nor is the level of participation universal among them. Moses is both acknowledging and questioning 
this principle of collective punishment and whether God is serious about acting on that principle in this case. Now this can all get a little bit confusing in the story because the Bible keeps using the word community over and over, but it's actually each time referring to a somewhat different group of people in this story. It's not unlike us pointing to a group and saying, these people, and then to a part of that same group and saying, now, these people. If you were there, you'd get it. The Hebrew term, ha-edah, which is what's being translated here into the word community, is a rather all-encompassing, it's a very flexible term that's used to refer to most any assembly of people, usually when they're a common race, maybe performing a common action, uh, maybe agreeing on a common decision. So the community that showed up at the tent of meeting with the rebels was those who sided with the rebels. When the presence of the Lord appeared to the whole community, the kol ha'edah, it was that everyone in the nation of Israel could see his presence. Okay. When God told Moses to stand back from this community because he was going to destroy them, he of course was referring to the rebels and all those who backed them. When Moses asked God if he would destroy the kol edah, the whole community, because of one man's sin, this was referring to all of Israel again. And when we get back to verse 26... And Moses tells the community to stand away from the tents of the wicked men, the reference to community, all right, to the ha-edah in this case, was to all those who did not stand with the rebels. And this is emphasized when Moses tells the innocent to disassociate themselves from those rebels, not to even touch anything that belonged to them, right, because they might wind up being collateral damage when the guilty got punished. Kind of a lesson in all that. Now we find this principle of separation woven throughout the entire Bible, Old and New Testaments. Believers must be separated from non-believers at one point. Clean from unclean. Sinners from saved. Sheep from goats. The trick is to discern how and how much God's righteous are to separate from the unrighteous. That's the trick. The essence of Yeshua's day took that principle to one extreme and they created their own separate colonies with stringent rules of membership. They even established their headquarters out in the wilderness, far away from everybody else at a place today we call Qumran. Okay. Messiah, by the way, didn't approve of that extreme kind of separation, and he said so. On the other hand, as believers, we're not, we are directly told in the Bible not to associate with murderers, thieves, and those who don't belong to the Lord. It says we're to be in this world, just not of this world. Now notice that we find several things going on at once in this episode. First it was that only Korah and the 250 leaders and then their cohorts showed up at the tent of meeting for this demonstration test involving the fire pans and the incense. Now recall that Datan and Abiram 
refused to even come away from their tents when Moses called them. And since they were in essence saying that it should be them, not Moses running the show, it's easy to understand why they refused to respond when Moses sent for them. They were sending a message that they didn't accept Moses' authority and neither should anybody else. So if you can't bring Muhammad to the mountain, you bring the mountain to Muhammad. Okay, verse 25 says, Moses arose, and he went to the tents of Datan and Avaram with the elders of Israel. Elders mean the official representatives of the people of Israel. By definition, they sided with Moses. Okay. And leaving from the eastern entrance into the ta- uh, tabernacle courtyard, and then they went to the southern side of the encampment where Datan and Aviram's tribe camped. Now it's important to remember that the tribe of Levi camped adjacent. They camped right next to the tribe of Reuben, so they kind of formed a neighborhood together. And when Moses showed up at the tents of Datan and Abiram, they came out to confront him. And Moses pronounced judgment upon them. He says, tell you what, if you live a normal lifespan and then die like any other man normally does, See, then Moses was acting on his own accord and it wasn't God that was ordering him to do this. In other words, if God doesn't do something spectacular, then indeed, they must have been right all along. Moses wasn't the legitimate legitimate leader of Israel. On the other hand, Moses says, if the ground opens up and swallows you up, then you are wrong. That's your punishment. Well, no sooner had Moses finished speaking that last syllable did the ground suddenly and violently split open right beneath the tents of Datan and Avaram and all those surrounding them who sided with them and they all fell into that deep crevice and perished. The dead included the family of Korah and all those among his clan who sided with him. Women, children, infants, their animals, everybody, everything. Their tents, their material possessions, it all fell into that enormous split in the ground. In other words, every last vestige of these rebels' lives, every evidence they had ever existed, was wiped out by the hand of God in a moment of his wrath. And all the Israelites who saw what happened, presumably the innocent ones, fled in panic, because they were afraid they might fall into that gaping crevice. Well, the last verse of the chapter then changes location. We're taken back from the south side of the encampment where Moses had walked and all this had taken place to the east side and to the entrance to the tent of meeting. And there, Korah and the 250 men who had showed up with their unauthorized firepans and incense to challenge God's established hierarchy, men who had no business. They, hadn't, they didn't have the sufficient status to even come near God. They were burned alive by fire coming out from Adonai's own presence. <coughs> Now, if this isn't a good picture of hell, the lake of fire and the ultimate punishment of the unrighteous, I don't know what is. 
The rebels, their families, everything they owned were purged from Israel because they had become unclean in God's sight. That's what disobedience does to us. Recall that a few years earlier, some other men had also offered strange fire, unauthorized incense to God, and they suffered the same fate. Nadab and Abihu, who were the sons of Aaron, the high priest. But Nadab and Avihu held the proper status. They had the right to offer incense to God. These rebellious men, just destroyed, didn't. See, the problem was that Nadav and Avahu offered coals that had been taken from something other than the altar of burnt offering, which was the only allowable place for those coals to come from. So the sin against God perpetrated by Korah, Datan, and Abiram and the 250 men was even worse than what Nadav and Avahu had done. In the case of Nadav and Avahu, only they suffered the divine wrath, for they acted only on their own behalf. But in the case of Korah, Datan, and Aviram, their entire families, as well as anyone who even agreed with what they were doing, were wiped out. Well, next it says that all the rebels went down to Sheol. Sheol was the place of the dead. The grave. It was seen as a place that lay below the surface of the ground. Was Sheol contemplated in that era the same way that we currently do as a place where deep underground Satan and his demon henchmen dwell? As hell or Hades, a place of fire and eternal torment for lost souls? I heard somebody say no, that's exactly right. No, it was not. In fact, they weren't really all that clear what Sheol was other than it was the grave and in, some, in it some kind of afterlife existed. They weren't clear what happened to the physical body in Sheol after death other than normal decomposition. They, they weren't clear on what happened to the breath of existence that we usually call a soul when they died. Now we're going to find throughout Torah that the Israelites were very worried about what happened to them after death. Because Sheol was seen as everyone's destiny. It wasn't just for the wicked. But one of the worst things that could happen once in Sheol was that worms could eat up one's body. And often that is what was thought to be a divine punishment for those who had died in an unrighteous state. Now, why this inordinate intention and concern about what happened to their bodies after they were dead? Well, first, they really had no concept of going to live with God in heaven. Remember, they thought pretty much as the Egyptians thought. And the Egyptians spent their whole lives getting ready to die. Okay? Their afterlife was predicated on preservation of the physical body. Hence their desire for embalming and a, and a nice protected place for their corpse to remain after they had died. So although Israel didn't really practice the death cult or, or body preservation like the Egyptians did per se, they did have in their minds the dilemma of just what did happen to them after their death and what to do about and how to 
how to prepare for it. The primary point of the punishment that's expressed in this story, by falling into the crevice going down to Sheol, was that these people died at God's hand. Or to sharpen the point a bit, they died prematurely as a consequence of their disobedient behavior. And dying before one's normal lifespan had been spent was seen as a terrible thing and greatly to be feared. Well, last week I told you that one of the main lessons we should take from this is that redemption cannot only be rejected in the first place, it can be given back at the will of the one who receives it. Just as Korah, Datan, Aviram, and hundreds, if not thousands, of their followers had determined to choose their old lives back in Egypt rather than remain in their redemption from Egypt that they had already received from God, so it is with we modern day believers. Put the emphasis though on choose. Because all these rebels chose to go with Israel when they left Egypt. They certainly weren't forced to go. And these same rebels chose to make for themselves new leaders who would take them back to Egypt. They chose to give up the redemption. It works the same way for us. Nobody can take our redemption from us. Nobody. There is no place we can go where it becomes invalid. But just as we choose to accept our redemption, we can choose to let go of it. And tragically, some countless number of people already have chosen, many more will choose to go back to Egypt. But even more tragically is what happens to us when we do refuse or we give back our redemption and it's demonstrated in full living color here in number 16. The consequence is that we're utterly and completely destroyed. There is no hope. There is no future. All that we worked a lifetime to build becomes as nothing. And perhaps worse is that, particularly as male leaders of our families and our congregations, we have the ability to lead others, to persuade. And we've got to watch it. We can influence the decisions of others. We can tempt them. And they can suffer the same fate we will because of our rebellion to do such a thing. Sobering thought. Listen to John 15. John 15.1 I am the real vine. My father is the gardener. Every branch which is part of me but fails to bear fruit, he cuts off. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will bear more fruit. Now right now, because of the word which I have spoken to you, you are pruned. Stay united with me as I will with you. For just as the branch can't put forth fruit by itself apart from the vine, you cannot bear fruit apart from me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who stay united with me and I with them are the ones who will bear fruit. Because apart from me you can't do a thing. Unless a person remains united with me, 
he is thrown away like a branch and he dries up. Those kinds of branches are gathered up and thrown into a fire where they are burned up. What does that sound like to you? Every branch, every believer that is part of Jesus, he says, that is united with me, but then fails to bear fruit, is what? What do you say? Cut off. And who cuts him off? He, referring to the Father, cuts them off. And what happened to those cut off branches that were at one time united with Messiah? What happened to them? Dried up, gathered up, burned up. I don't think they're talking about cremation. That's pretty clear. But let me also show you another foundational God principle that's demonstrated here. And it's this. Not everyone is permitted to approach God. In fact, only the redeemed can come near to the Lord. But even more, only the redeemed that are declared holy on some greater level can come near the Lord. On so many occasions I have referenced Paul and John and others in the New Testament who allude to believers as being priests to the Lord. And I think that this is both figurative and literal to some degree. Okay? We find here in Numbers that Jehovah declares that only priests can, can come near to his presence. And even then, that's just to a degree. And it's based on status. Regular priests can come near to him, but only so near. It's only the highest priest that's allowed to come closest to his glory, but even that is limited to one day per year. Yom Kippur. Those who do attempt to approach God, but who are not deemed by God as being authorized priests, are destroyed, as were Korah and the rest of his bunch. Why? Because God didn't authorize them to be in his presence. One of the many things that salvation accomplishes is to give us authorized access to God. God, by means of our belief in Yeshua, Jesus our Messiah, authorizes us to come into a place that no others are allowed under any circumstance. Near to him. Notice the dynamic and hierarchy set up in Israel. Moses is the sole mediator. There is no going to God without going through Moses, the mediator. Those who tried to replace the mediator or were determined to go around the a mediator were just rejected. They weren't given another path. They were destroyed with no hope of reinstatement. Our only possible access to God is by means of Yeshua, our mediator. We must come to Yeshua before we can come near God. 
No, I'm not forgetting that Yeshua is God, but that's another inscrutable matter to deal with. It was Moses who anointed the original priests in God's name. It is Christ that must anoint us with the Holy Spirit, which acts as our official authorization to come near to God. No Holy Spirit in us? That's our access card. But even then, there is a limitation as to just how near to Him we're allowed in in our present condition. Because even though He has given us new and clean spirits, these bodies are still made of corruptible material. Our minds still have evil inclinations. Therefore, we're told of a time when we're going to get new bodies made of uncorruptible material and new minds that won't even remember the former days, then we'll be able to get even nearer to the Father. Now, I can't tell you if the writers of the New Testament simply saw a direct correlation between the ability of the priests to come near to God and then with the advent of Jesus, the new ability for common people, Hebrew or Gentile, to come near to God by means of Christ. And therefore, from this understanding, they drew this analogy that we as disciples of Yeshua are like priests. I don't know. know. Or it may be that God actually and literally views us as his new and transformed priesthood. Paul, that's open to discussion. But either way, it's pretty special. But what I can tell you is that the pattern for how one is permitted to come near to the Lord was set up a long time ago. And the details of that pattern are explained here in the Torah. Let's move on to Numbers chapter 17. We're just going to read the first 15 verses. Numbers chapter 17. Complete Jewish Bible, page 168. Adonai said to Moshe, Tell Eleazar, the son of Aharon, the Kohen, to remove the fire pans from the fire. Scatter those smoldering coals at a distance because they have become holy. Also the fire pans of these men whose sin cost them their lives, they have become holy because they were offered before Adonai. Therefore, have them hammered into plates to cover up the altar. This will be a sign for the people of Israel. Eleazar the priest took the brass fire pans which the men who had been burned to death had offered and they hammered them into a covering for the altar to remind the people of Israel that an ordinary person not descended from Aaron is not to approach and burn incense before Adonai if he wants to avoid the fate of Korah and his group as Adonai had said to him through Moses. But the very next day the whole community of the people of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. You've killed Adonai's people. However, as the community was assembling against Moses and Aaron, they looked into the looked at the direction of the tent of meeting and they, they saw the cloud cover it and the glory of Adonai appeared. Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting. 
And Adonai said to Moses, Get away from this assembly. I'm going to destroy them at once. But they fell on their faces. Moses said to Aaron, Take your fire pan. Put fire from the altar in it. Lay incense on it. Hurry with it to the assembly to make atonement for them because anger has gone out from Adonai and the plague has already begun. Aaron took it. As Moses had said, he ran into the middle of the assembly. And there the plague had already begun among the people, but he added the incense. He made atonement for the people. He stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stopped. Those dying from the plague numbered 14,700 besides those who had died in the Korah incident. Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance to the tent of meeting and the plague was stopped. Well, under the pile of charred human remains lay more than 200 copper fire pans belonging to those rebels who presumed to disregard God's requirement that only priests were allowed to offer incense to him. But we have a problem. Just as being removed from the sanctuary grounds can defile holy items, common things that weren't intended for sacred purposes can contract holiness by being offered to Jehovah. It's very much like the principles of clean and unclean whereby uncleanness can be transmitted from one thing or person to another like a contagious virus. So the Lord orders Moses to instruct Eleazar the priest to perform the rather unpleasant task of sifting through all those charred bodies and removing those melted fire pans that had become holy by means of being offered to God in his presence. Notice in verse 2, it says that the coals used in those fire pans had to be removed from the era, from the area, the era, area meaning the tabernacle courtyard. Now, this was because the coals weren't taken from the great off, uh, altar of burnt offering, which was a requirement for offerings to the Lord. Now, they were common coals, from the campfires of the rebels. Therefore, these coals had to be taken away from the holy area, disposed of. But the fire pans that had contracted a measure of holiness that they were not authorized to have had to be dealt with in another manner. The solution was to hammer them into a lid for the fire basket to cover the altar. Now, this served two purposes. First, it served the practical purpose of keeping the banked coals of the altar hot overnight. And second, it served as a reminder to the people of what happens when an unauthorized person encroaches on the sacred area. So we see yet another pattern emerge. God often sets up ordinances and regulations for the purpose of reminders to his people to obey him. Why were the people to wear tzitzit? Reminders. They were, remember, they were the direct result of the incident when the man gathered sticks for a fire on Shabbat and they paid the ultimate price. Loss of both his physical and his spiritual life. That man had failed to observe one of God's appointed times and the Lord commanded tzitzit as a visual aid to help others avoid that same fate. 
as every Israelite would regularly have come to the tabernacle with their sacrificial offerings, the idea was they would see the lid for that altar made of the fire pans of those rebels who were burned up for thinking so little of God's priesthood and remember what happened to them. It would remind the people of what happens when mere men would presume to declare who or what is holy outside of what God declares. But wouldn't you just know it? Even with the stench of those smoldering bodies still lingering in the air, much of the community of Israel still doesn't get it. And so they set up a protest rally against Moses and Aaron. I mean, this would be absolutely hilarious if it wasn't so dangerously, irreverently foolhardy. I mean, they say to Moses and Aaron, it's you who brought death upon God's people. Amazing! But as I have attempted to demonstrate on numerous occasions, we must grasp that this Israelite people at this time was more Egyptian in their thinking than they were Hebrew. All the Middle East believed in sorcerers and priests whose job was less a matter of serving their gods than it was figuring out how to manipulate those gods for their own purposes. It was the same in Egypt, where it was believed that a good priest or magician could cause one god or another to do his bidding. And that thought formed much of the basis of the Hebrew thinking about God in that era as well. So even though the people well knew that Moses and Aaron hadn't personally set fire to those 250 leading men at the gateway to the tabernacle, nor had they they caused the earth to split open and swallow up all those men and their families, they did believe that Moses and Aaron had manipulated God to do it for them. You know, kind of like hiring a heavenly hitman. And sadly, another lesson was necessary. Once more, the people rebel. Once more, the presence of God appears and announces his intention to wipe them all out. Was God's plan to annihilate all Israel? No, just the rather large contingent of those who felt that they had been unjust of God to destroy those 250 at the tabernacle and also those hundreds or thousands who fell into the crevice. And once more Moses and Aaron fell on their faces, meaning prayer. And they pled with God not to destroy what likely amounted to scores of thousands of people. And once more God tells Moses and Aaron, get away from these people because there's going to be divine retribution. You don't want to get caught up in it. Why is it that God keeps telling Moses and Aaron to separate themselves from the community of those he plans on punishing? Will God wipe away the good people right along with the evil ones? Absolutely. Does this shock you? Bother you a little bit? Do you believe it? I hope you believe it. We have example after example after example of it in the Word of God. The way it works is this. The righteous will be affected by the same outpouring of wrath or a natural disaster as the wicked. If 
They don't separate themselves from the wicked. Isn't it funny? We tell our children this, don't we? You know, you're out at 3 o'clock in the morning, nothing good's going to happen. You hang out with that, those bunch of dudes, it doesn't matter whether you're a good person or not. You're going to get what they get. And they don't seem to believe it. Same principle right here. In Genesis, as messed up in his thinking that Lot had become, he was still considered sufficiently righteous as to not be counted among the wicked of Sodom. But Lot had to be literally drug out of the city by two angels because if he wouldn't have, he would have been destroyed when the city was destroyed by fire from heaven. There wouldn't have been a little magnetic Star Trek shield around him. He'd have got it too. Lot's wife didn't separate herself sufficiently from the city, even though she was given the opportunity. So she stopped to look back and yearn for all she'd left behind. She was turned into a pillar of salt. When the Lord determined to destroy the earth in a great flood, he instructed Noah to build an ark to save his family. You know, that flood was completely indiscriminate. It killed the charitable right along with the really bad people. Only those who chose to obey God chose to separate themselves from the wicked escaped. Back in Egypt, God went throughout Egypt and killed all the firstborn of every man and every animal. This is something people get wrong sometimes. It didn't matter whether your firstborn was a Hebrew, an Egyptian, a Syrian, an Arabian. It didn't matter. It didn't matter whether this was a, a good man or an evil man. If you were a firstborn, you were marked for death. Except, God provided a means for those who trusted him enough to separate themselves from this national disaster, they had to paint the blood of the Lamb on the doorposts of their homes. And if they did, the blood served as a barrier, a dividing line, a line of separation between they and the others so they were passed over. As believers, when we stay attached to the wicked ways and to the wicked people of this world, we put ourselves at serious risk of being collateral damage when God judges the world. Let me be clear. By attached, I mean identified. That is, that we identify with their ways, their thinking. We kind of agree with it. Can you be a believer and still agree with so many ways of the world? You bet you can, and we see it every day. But what the Lord is explaining here is not that we're supposed to go off and create exclusive Christian communities apart from all the other communities. It's that any time and every time we must demonstrate with our actions where we stand with the world 
or whether we stand with the word. We must be willing to separate ourselves or risk the divine consequences. And in case you haven't noticed, this is getting harder and harder to do. The more obedient we are, the more we're labeled as fanatics and fundamentalists. We're jeered at. We're told we're just backward and ignorant. Lately, we're starting to be looked at as dangerous. Even here. We're not tolerant enough. If we speak out against abortion and homosexuality, well, we're just full of hate. If we don't agree with Israel giving up their inheritance to the Palestinians, we're Zionist wackos who threaten world peace that's just around the corner. Will you respond when God calls you to be separate? Or will you remain identified with all the familiar and comfortable ways of the majority? I implore you to back away, starting tonight, with any identification with that which the Lord calls wicked. Not what our society calls wicked. What the Lord calls wicked. Because at any moment, judgment can fall and you could be an innocent bystander. Or maybe a not-so-innocent bystander. How about that? Next week, we're going to watch as judgment falls on the community of those who merely identified with Korah, Datan, and Avaram. Okay? That'll do it for tonight.